There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, personal astrophysicist. Today, we're going to talk about protecting Earth from space. <laughs> Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure to be here, man. Yeah. I, yeah, honestly, yeah. I think today's show should be called Destroying Earth from Space. <laughs> from Space. Or <laughs> from Within. You know? or, from, oh. or from Within. Because we seem to be doing our damnedest to get it done, don't we? Ooh. Ooh. I, I, I try to turn a blind eye to that, but I shouldn't. What we have to help us put some of that content on the table is writer, producer, director... Adam McKay. Adam, welcome to Star Talk, dude. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Adam, Adam gets an applause. Now, you know, we don't, I, we don't applaud our guests here, but Adam. You, you have never applauded anyone You, have, you ever, know I have never Chuck. applauded a guest, Neil. But I'm, that is I'm, true. Just, I'm just so impressed with, with what he has just accomplished. So, Well, let me give, put some of his resume out there. So you're a former head writer for SNL. All right. And you're co-founder of Upright Citizens Brigade. Very cool. I love their work. You're also a co-writer, along with Will Ferrell, with uh, Anchorman. All right, that was cool. Uh, Talladega Knights, Step Brothers. Okay, uh, uh, co-founder of Funny or Die. All right, uh, that's a production company, if I remember correctly. Uh, Is that right? right? I think yes. So, uh, and and wrote and directed The Big Short. I distinctly remember yes. that movie. Um, very. It was like. Oh my gosh, this has happened, and we lived and, through it. But that's not why you, we have you on the show right now. That's right, because that's not quite why. frankly, that's not all of that is gold-plated dross <laughs> in comparison to why we have Adam on the show. Which is because of my workout routine, <laughs> which I'm going to share with you today. My exactly. diet, my weight program. 
and you too. That's exactly not the reason. So, so Adam. There you go. Adam, Adam has a new Peloton class he wants to. <laughs> he wants he's to trying to plug. He's trying to plug. He's trying to plug his new Peloton class. <laughs> so Adam, you you wrote, directed, and produced the Netflix hit "Don't Look Up." It's a that movie. That is correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> It is star-studded, starting Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, and, and you know, it's, it's there's a dozen famous people who have each starred in their yep. own films. You managed to collab them together for this script, and it's about an asteroid or comet that's headed, discovered to be headed towards Earth, putting all of life on Earth at risk, mm -hmm. and the travails and challenges and troubles of the scientists trying to alert the public and everyone ignores them or discounts it. And so what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What? what? Who told you to make this? Why? Who? What? Did your mama tell? Do? do? Explain you know, yourself, please. Like a lot of ideas, it came from stark terror. Uh, which is the last 5, 10, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, back to 1965, um, of just our culture and our leaders and our industry and our media ignoring that we're flooding the you know atmosphere, the climate, with CO2, and we are on a bad, bad path. And, uh, you know, I had the fortunate, unfortunate, uh, experience of colliding with a lot of this information from reading scientific reports and reading a great book by David Wallace Wells called Uninhabitable Earth, which if you haven't read it, read it and it will wake you up when it comes to the climate. And I really started, like my wife can tell you, at a certain point, I was losing sleep and I kept kind of looking at our world and going, what am I missing here? And rather than do, you know, my initial idea was, oh, do a big, dramatic, dystopic, serious movie. But then uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist made an offhanded joke, David Sirota, where he just said, it's like it's Armageddon, but the asteroid is coming and no one cares. And I was like, that's it. And, and then I thought if we could laugh, you know, if we could have some laughter about the crazy world we live in, as well as some big emotions, that maybe that's something that could go out into the world and hit millions of people and maybe jar some feelings loose. So that was it. It was definitely a crazy... So you were born, you were born to make this movie. That's what you're telling me. I am telling you that, you, that you I was plucked from the Schuylkill River outside Philadelphia, <laughs> where I'm from. And they said, this child shall make... A movie for Netflix, <laughs> like, like, like Dirty Moses pulled, <laughs> pulled from the I river. Was pulled from this. Charles shall save us. We got to clean him up first. <laughs> well, he says school kill. That's why I called him Dirty Moses. No, the Schuylkill's dirty. You know, I'm, the Schuylkill's dirty. Yeah, I'm from Philly too, so yes. I can say that. So, Adam, what it, what it, what enabled you to amass this level of? talent. I'm presuming, I mean, these are people who are well paid in their own movies. So is there some kind of social cause that that they get to justify doing this without having to get their normal paycheck? 
<laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, the cool thing is, uh, I got to give a lot of credit to Netflix. You know, Netflix read this crazy script and was just like, yep, we'll roll with this. And, you know, the whole kind of emotional uh, impetus for the project was the idea that there's hundreds of millions of us out there that are freaking out, even though if you flip through the TV channels or you look on, you know, parts of social media, people seem like they're freaking out about other things or they're, you know, they don't care or it's about the stock market or it's about, you know, politicians' legacies. And the idea was there's a lot of us out there that can feel what's going on. And that played out with the actors. All the actors we went to were like, yup, I want to laugh about this. I want to go into I'm on, this. I want a piece of that. Yeah. Yeah, but but Adam, you started describing your concerns based on climate change, but you didn't make a movie about climate change. Maybe it's allegorical, but you had to come into my place, into my universe, and tell a tell a tell a climate change story where you don't even mention climate change. Man, Why are you coming uh, in my space to do this? Because because your space and your people have been trying to kill us since the inception of your of your uh, your whole science. It's always about us. The earth, the universe is trying to kill us. <laughs> that, that's true. I, I get that. <laughs> so, at what point did you say maybe if I told it about climate, no one would pay attention? So let me tell it about asteroids. So this is a a storyteller's. Uh, ruse, right? Yeah, yeah, in a way, because I think one of the tricky things with the climate crisis, which you gentlemen, I'm sure, know, is that it's slow and creeping, even though now it's getting much faster and much more overt. Um, but I think one of the tricky things is, you know, the way we're wired as humans, we know how to freak out and run from a bear, or we know how to, like, deal with a serial killer, like we all get that, but the idea that these gases, you know, this carbon that we're burning is creating greenhouse gases. That you can't see. That you yeah. can't see, and you have to go to climate scientists who, God bless them, aren't really, you know, built to like be the PR front for this story. I think it just falls in a tricky area. And so I thought by replacing climate, uh, the climate crisis with uh, a comet, which is something we all sort of mostly get, like that's scary, uh, would put the spotlight on our messed up human reaction. And, and that's really what the movie's about. I mean, the movie's really about how we've, you know, befouled, twisted, and mutated the very ways that we talk to each other through social media, through media, through career, through money. And and that's really ultimately what the movie's about. Chuck, did you hear how 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 politely he referenced the media ineptitude of scientists? <laughs> right. And, <laughs> what and, phrase and, well, did you not use? Even, not, not just that, but the way he um, um, basically uh, cajoled the uh, the public in their response because this movie could have just as easily been called hey dumbass that could have been the name yeah, of he, the just, movie. he didn't put those words in your mouth he just, i mean wait 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 let me defend i didn't say you said let that let me defend Adam. that point i didn't put those words in your mouth i mean Adam. the people at large have been you know chest deep in BS, spin, and marketing for yes. decades. Yes. And 
And yes. I think it's tricky. I mean, you look at like the resistance to the vaccine. Well, like, you know, for decades, people have been getting sold, you know, crazy drugs like Oxycontin. Their doctors are telling them, oh, yeah, take this. And then we're surprised when like a vaccine comes out and people are like, I don't know about that. So there's been a lot of like marketing, PR, twisting, turning about science, which is crazy. And it kind of makes people mm -hmm. have to like figure exactly. out yeah. how science works and what real science is versus marketing PR science. So we're in a tricky spot. And and uh, so, no, you know, it was cool to see people's reactions for, for the movie because, you know, it went worldwide and everyone was kind of like, oh yeah, I get that. Uh, and like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta read my tweet. I, I gotta read my tweet that, I, I, I don't know if you saw my tweet, Adam, but I'm going to read it right I now. I did. I did. I, I think I retweeted it. I love some. Uh, I love some some love from Neil. I, I took it. <laughs> some Twitter love. I said, finally saw the Netflix film "Don't Look Up," a fictional tale of a nation distracted by pop culture and divided on whether to heed dire warnings of scientists. Everything I know about news cycles, talk shows, social media, and politics tells me the film was instead a documentary. <laughs> that's, <a bomb>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's all. Just, just, I stood there flat-footed and, and, and put it out there. You know, uh, uh, before you go any further, since you said that, Neil, since you just said that, which, the fact that it's a documentary, what was the pushback, if any, Adam, uh, from what community or any community that saw this and said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> or that's a bunch of BS. Or, oh, look at you, you whatever. Was there any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got some of that. I mean, anytime you do a comedy, you know certain people are going to be with it or not with it. And so that's right. a given. But then, yeah, there was he, some... He means, Chuck, there was... anytime you offend people, people are going to be with it or against it. <laughs> that's what he means. When he said, anytime well, you we... do a comedy... Well it, right. it, well, it ain't comedy unless somebody's... <laughs> I mean, we definitely okay. had certain quarters of the media were not too happy with the movie. I mean, we go pretty hard at the collective media. There was one paper that's pretty famous for climate denial where, you know, their critic did not care for the movie. So you got some of that. Um, but okay. for the most part, uh, you know, once the movie premiered on Netflix, no, it was it was a great universal response of we know what that's saying. It was it was really heartening, actually, because I, th I think there's this idea that people don't get it, that people are bored, they want entertainment. And it's like, no, people actually know what's going on and they're frustrated with the BS. So it was a cool moment to see that, to see that people across the political divide. I mean, the weird thing about this movie is it got some great responses across the red-blue political divide, which, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, but when I saw that, it was, uh, it was actually hopeful. Cool. Mm. Cool. Okay. So at this point, we're going to reveal some of the things that happened at the end of the movie. So if you... Spoiler no, alert! <laughs> so you can sort of fast forward to the next segment if you'd like to right now. So uh, I was particularly intrigued by Meryl Streep's character playing the president of the United States. And um, there, there's a... Is she based on some amalgam of personalities out there that 
you thought would do just right as president? <laughs> no, no, just one. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, Sorry. I mean, there's up. definitely a, a big old tablespoon of the last president in there. The sort of blinding narcissism, only responding to the moment, no foresight, no question that's in there. But, you know, hey, I talked to Merrill about it, and, you know, there's also a little bit of Bill Clinton in there. There's some, you know, the used car salesman kind of slick, you know, sort of nefarious Bill Clinton. There's also... You know, half a tablespoon of George W. Bush, dangerously unqualified. So, unfortunately, well, plus it was the America, announcement on the battleship. The announcement on the ship was part of that, I, right? You, there's exactly, some there like where, yeah. So, so that's why I didn't. Um, so, Chuck, I didn't uniquely identify any one actor with any one real other person. There was enough of an amalgam there that I, I saw all of society, all of American society uh, folded into practically all of those characters from the from the the talk show well, host. See, Neil, the problem is I, I, I'm not as smart as either one <laughs> of you. <so. laughs> you need simple characters what based I on saw, simple... Yeah, what I saw was what I wanted to see. I saw what I wanted to see. I was wondering, Adam, up to that point, are, are people just a lens, not a lens, are they their own filter? And they will then see in this, like to what Chuck said, what they want to see without really grasping the fuller storytelling that you imbued it with. I mean, I, I was really happy with how people got it. I mean, people got the idea, you know, there's jokes in the movies about super donors being allowed in the White House. There's, you know, clearly yes. the media is just concerned with good cheer and keeping the ratings up. And it was pretty amazing to to see those reactions. And even the ending of the movie where, you know, once all the white noise of our kind of for-profit kind of uh, jumble of media goes away, how things got real and got about family and faith. Right. Like, people really got into it. I, I was, like, really happy with that part of the response, even though there was certainly an element that was, like, didn't dig it. Um, for the yeah. most part, though, the public at large was was dialing into it. Um, so, you know, you never know. You have these feelings. You make a movie. Kind of seems like how the world is now. I mean, you even look at the White House now, which is, you know, uh, the opposition party. And then the Congress is owned by the opposition party. Well, what's going on with them? They're stuck in the mud because of dirty money and they're not doing anything. So, you know, right. these problems, I, I think we've been scammed in some ways with this red-blue game. And I, I think it's yes. all about dirty money, big money. And if we could just get that out, things would start moving a lot better. So it was cool to see people around the world identify with that and know that was the case. So let me ask you this. Did you, did, did you do this on purpose or was it just a byproduct of or a natural outworking of what you just mentioned? It, at the end, there was kind of an admirable nod to AI in a very humorous way where the technology and the prediction or the predictive analytics of technology came true but at the same time, the reliance upon the people who run technology effed everything up. Was that purpose? Wow. Chuck went deep. 
Chuck, Chuck is went deep. like Chuck. three Chuck. layers into the moussaka, <laughs> into the lasagna with that one. I like it. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's incredible, these algorithms that they use for wait, wait, social wait, wait, wait. media. Chuck, it sounded like he didn't intend any of that at all. That's what uh, yeah, 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 I did that on purpose. <laughs> that's what, Adam, that's what you sounded like just then. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I was that brilliant when I wrote that part. <laughs> By the way, that's a much better answer. I should have been mysterious and just said, Chuck, you got to find your own meaning in it. We just make what we do. That would have been a much cooler. If I had a pipe, I would have taken a hit off a pipe and just been like, find your own meaning. Um, no, but you're right, though. I mean, God, these you, you guys know these algorithms they have for search engines and for social media and the way they corral us and get emotions out of us. We were definitely playing around with that. But I, I liked I liked that yeah. Leo's character was told what his death was going to be, and then it wasn't that death. Even right. though, right. you're right, the president did have her death that was predicted. Um, so right. as much as the algorithms try and corral us, I guess we were trying to make a point like you can still stop it, you know. Right, right, right. right. You need right. without that kind of message, you know, then you just you just pissing people off, <laughs> depressing people. <laughs> so, so let me. I, I, it's a rare moment. I have two sort of comedic people in front of me. Uh, I love that I'm the mm, sort no, of. No. Yeah, that was hurtful, Neil. No, that no, was that hurtful. was. <laughs> did I say sort of? I didn't mean that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> given that I have. Two comedic talents in front of me. I'd like to ask, do you think comedy is the best way to change someone's heart? D as compared with teaching wow. that giving them a curriculum wow. lesson plan. I I'll let I have my but I'll let Adam do this. Uh one. well see what you think, Chuck. I mean, here's the okay. funny thing is, you know, the reason we chose comedy with this is comedy is great in the sense that. It's kind of a truth detector. Like if you wanted to go on stage and do a stand-up routine about how billionaires are taxed too much, I dare you to get a laugh off of that. Like an audience will know that's bogus. And people have tried. They had a Fox News comedy show about 15 years ago they tried to do it and it just bombed. And uh, <laughs> true. And uh, so I, I think comedy is great. And I also think comedy... You have to have a perspective. You can't laugh at something if you're in the middle of being traumatized by it. Like, it's hard to laugh about a crazed, you know, uh, monkey attacking you. But, like, if you can look from a distance at a crazed monkey, you can laugh at it. So I think comedy does a lot of things. I think it's a truth detector. I think it also means you have to have some perspective. You have to have a little bit of a view of the world, which... I, you know, personally, I think that's exactly what we need right now. The world is so overwhelming and confusing and ridiculous and traumatizing that for us to be able to step back uh, just feels good right away. Chuck, what do you think? For, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. And I also think that unlike, um, you know, uh, any other didactic message, which immediately puts people on the defensive and immediately causes them to withdraw in whatever uh, thought if they disagree, that they have if they disagree already. In advance, yeah. um, if they disagree, comedy disarms you because you're laughing first as an impulse. And then you go, hey, 
<laughs> which is always my favorite humor when, uh, you know, whether I'm doing it or somebody else is, my favorite thing to happen on stage is when I tell a joke and people laugh and then they groan. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I love that. And my answer to that every time is, too late, bitches. <laughs> I already got you. It's too late. You it's, oh, you laughed. It's already funny. You can't come back. I think that's grown. spot on because it's like you laugh and then you realize in laughing, the world is not black and white. We're all contradictions. Exactly. Like I always say with this movie, people are like, oh, you're trying to warn people about climate and you're doing all this. Well, what are you doing? I'm like, don't get me wrong. I'm a moron. I Like if there's a new ad for like a Taco Bell combo burrito filled with mini <laughs> tacos, I'm like, I want to eat that. And like, I, I'm, I'm way too invested in is our Affleck and Jennifer Lopez happy together. Like I'm way too invested in that. So it's like, we're all like this. I mean, we're all animals that love like great smells and bright colors. But, you know, there's a little part of us, too, that can do something like step back and take a look at stuff. So that combo is kind of the whole game, which I think is what Chuck's talking about. So so what uh, what do you know about the movie's been out for several months now? Don't look up on Netflix. What what do you know about what impact has it has had? No pun intended. You know, some of it's anecdotal. In some cases, Netflix gives you all these crazy statistics. But I mean, it's been really cool. I've just seen some, you know, stories where uh, an opposition leader in the French government the other day referred to Macron's inaction over the climate as he's like Janie Orlean from Don't Look Up. There it is. I saw okay. the organizer of COP in uh, in Glasgow refer to Don't Look Up. I've seen, it's been mentioned in articles about leaders that are denying science. Extinction Rebellion in the UK has rallied around the film and has been mentioning it. Um, so that's really cool. And then they show you the stats where it's like, you know, by some estimates, 250 to 300 million people have seen the movie. And and then they show you the social media responses and they're showing you that it's four to one positive. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of stats. There's a lot of anecdotal, but okay, but I, like the I fact can just that say if, from- if, the, if reference to the movie and its characters becomes part of pop culture, then you, I don't know what more right. you could ever hope a movie to do. And hundred percent, right? Yep, right. There, there are movies that are the in fact our that we now parlance that we, you know say, oh, it's it. Let's go to Oz, right? We know what that means. It's it's part of our it's part of our lexicon, our cinematic literacy. So that's a, I think that's an excellent measure, and there's perhaps no better measure of the influence of a movie than people. Yeah, I mean the idea it. that there's now there's now oh, sorry. The idea that there's now a phrase for self-interested leaders and media and conglomerates ignoring science and it's don't look up is like, and it seems right. to kind of be catching. I mean, it's still a little early, but if that was the result, I we're, we're doing backflips. I mean, we just tried to get something out there to kind of jar some people and it's just a movie. So, you know, your hopes are, are fairly modest, but, uh, of course it's the tagline of this show, of our, the tagline of the show is the opposite of that, right? I end every show with keep looking up. And so 
to to, yeah. to watch the movie to hear what they don't look up. It's like each one of those was like a, a dagger to my <laughs> to my heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what, Adam, you should have named your show. <laughs> that's you, Neil Tyson. That's, I were... felt that every time someone said "Don't look up." <laughs> All right, we so were really close. We we tested it. We printed up posters. <laughs> I know, Adam, you didn't leave the viewer any hope at the end. Except for the 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 infinitely rich who went on the the ship, and we didn't like any of them anyway. So so so, what does it mean to offer no hope? This is America, we like some hope. Ah, uh, well, you know, I mean, here's the thing: it's Rather, just a movie. We like happy it's endings. Fictional. We like happy endings. Yeah, it's it's a fictional outcome, but we definitely we're very conscious of the fact that we have seen thousands of movies for decades that have the guaranteed happy ending. And, you know, we were trying to say, if you, you know, we're not audience members, we're part of this. And unless you do something, there's not a guaranteed happy ending. So it was amazing to see how much that ending really hit people just because it, it broke the kind of routine that we're used to, but make no mistake about it. Uh, Science is powerful. Science is the Excalibur on the wall. If we take it down and use it, uh, we can deal with this this urgent, urgent climate crisis. I mean, we have renewable energy. See, what you could have had... already no, cheaper. Adam, what you could have had was a small faction of people in your movie who watch Star Talk, okay? <laughs> and listen to Star Talk. And then I they apologize. And then I they, should have had this in there. They ah. band together, and then they figure out how to convince everybody how to properly deflect the asteroid, and Earth is saved. See, you could you could have had that. That could have been the ending. Maybe we'll release that version. The but, director's um, cut. <laughs> or we could have we could have had a bunch of people laughing at Chuck's stand up, and then through the joy of their laughter. They see the world clearly, and they get the governments to do it. Could have been either one of those, <laughs> um, or we could have had the reality of that same scenario where they're actually egging on the end of the world because they're watching. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but yeah, like rather, I, I've been rather saying, than sit through Chuck's routine, they'd rather the world end. Is that what you're saying, Chuck? Right. <laughs> Yes. Even so, come <laughs> asteroid now. There were some. Uh, so, Adam, you probably got this in your stream. It, when I posted my Twitter comment about the film, uh, the re response was wide and varied, and many were humorous. One of the, one of them said, "By the end of the film, I was rooting for the comet. <laughs> they didn't care. They didn't care about anybody." <laughs> so, Adam, let me get at least a little half serious here. If a movie has the power to move people intellectually, emotionally. You, what you have done with Don't Look Up is hold up a mirror to us all. But a movie also has the power to offer a solution. And you didn't offer a solution. A solution to get through, to cut through the brush and bramble and the muck and mire of social media and, and, and political idiocy. So you could have, and you didn't. So is that, what do you want people to do? Yeah, I mean, I think this movie was a kick in the pants. I mean, this movie was, you know, what we're missing when it comes to the climate crisis is will in action, right? Those two things. And that a lot of people don't feel the urgency in their bones. And I'm not saying 
they're at fault. It just is what it is. So this movie was designed to be a big old kick in the pants. And what I hope is I hope other people, and certainly our production companies doing it, I want to see other movies, other TV shows. I want to see, you know, the news start to cover, the media start to cover the different ways we can deal with this because there are a lot of ways we can. I mean, we have the renewable energy. Of we, we yeah. you know, there's there's some early research going on with carbon removal that's really exciting. Carbon you got to be careful though, because the yeah. fossil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or but the fossil fuel companies will come in and use those solutions as a way to slow us down. So you got to kind of distinguish between the good faith and bad faith solutions. But um, but yeah, it is ultimately one movie, and uh, we could only tell so much of a story. And the goal of it was a kick in the pants, a moment of identification for people that have felt gaslit. And a chance for people to have a little perspective on how batshit crazy our world is. That was the goal of the movie. And yeah, you're you're 100% right, Neil. Like, So Yale and George Mason have a study. And in that study, one of the things that was most prominent is the fact that one of the biggest problems with climate is that people do not talk about it. So when you talk about the impact of movies having a shockwave, the fallout is if people talk about it, that is part of the solution. I, uh, You just gave my answer in your question. Yeah, that's it. Is like, I don't think people realize how much power they have in just the people they talk to, the way they behave, feeling an emotion. I mean, you know, advertising companies are trying to replicate word of mouth. That's what they're trying to replicate. But every study shows like nothing's more powerful than people just talking to each other. So that was it. That was the goal of this one. Let's get a little spark going. I'm going to summarize what both of you just said by quoting Ray Bradbury. And so Ray Bradbury will take us out of this segment. He said, when asked by a fan, because Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer, said, why do you always portray these apocalyptic futures for humanity? Is that the future you think we're going to have? And he says, no, I show you those futures so you know to avoid them. Oh, that's good. Very nice. Adam, great to have you. Keep being crazy out there and doing things that no one else would even think of doing and thereby changing the world for the better. When we come back, we're going to invite in my friend and colleague, Amy Mainzer, who's an astrophysicist, who's one of the world's experts on planetary protection, protecting Earth from asteroids. And she's going to talk about it, a recent mission launched by NASA to test whether we have the power to deflect asteroids when Star Talk returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely 
positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Joel Cherico, and I make pottery. You can see my pottery on my website, CosmicMugs.com. Cosmic Mugs, art that lets you taste the universe every day. And I support Star Talk on Patreon. This is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk. We're talking about cosmic things that can harm humans on Earth. Coming off a great interview with Adam McKay, writer, producer, director of Don't Look Up, the Netflix hit movie. And now we bring in a friend and colleague, Amy Mainzer. Amy, welcome back to Star Talk. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back. The last I checked in on you, you were at the Jet Propulsion Labs in uh, uh, Pasadena, California. And where are you now? Well, I have since moved, and now I'm at the University of Arizona in the Department of Planetary Science. Very cool. Uh, one of the uh, jewels in the crown of that institution. Uh, all, all the, all the, whenever they look up, so they find something good <laughs> at the University of Arizona. So that's one of the, uh, one of the finest departments around. So thank, great to have you back on Star Talk. Now, why do we have you here? We could have had you anyway, just because of your, your expertise thinking about stuff that can harm us. But you doubled down on that as being like the science astro advisor to the film, Don't Look Up. And so what we're going to do is we solicited questions from our audience, and a zillion of them came in. But just before we go to those, check you got, Chuck, you're loaded up with those questions? I am. Yeah, we're yeah, okay. good to go. We're good to go. So before we do that, let me just ask you, Amy, what did they want you to do for the film? Well, you know, I think the role of science advisor probably is different for every movie or TV show. But for this one, uh, there was quite a bit to do. There was uh, basically advising Adam and the rest of the cast and the crew on the actual asteroid and comet science. But kind of even more basically, there was a, a kind of a task of advising them on what it means to be a scientist and how do scientists think and what do we do when we have bad news to tell everybody based on what we're learning. So it's interesting, I implicated you I think probably correctly, because they wouldn't have known this otherwise, 
on the on the in the scripting. Uh, I was interviewed by MSNBC, and they played a scene about "Don't Look Up," and they played a scene where I forgot which character asserts it. It might have been Leonardo DiCaprio. He says, "A comet the size of Mount Everest is going to hit Earth," and I say, "Well, you don't get that size just." by accident, because that was the size of the comet that took out the dinosaurs. And so a, a real astronomer had to be in there sort of infusing these, these reference frames for them. So did I correctly credit you for telling them that? Oh, yeah, thank you. Yes, <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, we See, had Chuck, a lot my of people, my people, we all, our people, we all know how we got to talk. See, exactly. Chuck, just right. so you know. <laughs> yes. The dinosaurs died and so are you. <laughs> so will you. That's so will you, yes, yeah. Well, and hopefully so, how, not. Hopefully not this time. <laughs> did you also coach them on the behavior of scientists as scientists? Yeah. Rather than just script points? Yeah, we really talk about a lot of different aspects of what it means to be a scientist. Just, you know, how do scientists think? What are the things that sort of frustrate us? And how do we, you know, how do we succeed? And sometimes how do we fail when we try to communicate with the public and, and with people who are, who are in power to make decisions about what's going to happen to all of us? Yeah, but okay, but wait a minute, though. You are very good at communicating with the public. How do you train actors to be bad at communicating with the public? <laughs> well, I think, you know... If you, if you told them all you knew, they would have been much, much better at it. <laughs> so how do you tell them what you don't know and have them be bad at it? Well, it's funny because we, we Leonardo and I especially talk a lot about this this part that, you know, there's a tendency in science to, to use a lot of I just love that you can say that. I, I mean... <laughs> first name basis. First of all, don't... Even tried to just bury that lead, Amy. <laughs> Don't even try. Let the woman be first name basis with I all mean, these people, dude. Wait a minute. No. Uh, you know, At least you didn't call him Leo. Wait a minute. Okay. Leonardo and I, we talk a lot about it. It's like, and we know that you're not doing a seance with Da Vinci. Like, right, okay. Which Go ahead, I'm sorry. Cool, which would have yeah. been very cool. I would definitely. That would have been even cooler. Yeah, that would have been cooler. If that's possible, yeah. that would have been very cool. Now even we, more cool. We talked a lot about just, you know, what is it What is it that's so confusing sometimes? Obviously, we use a ton of jargon, and we do it sometimes without even meaning to. I mean, you guys encounter this all the time, right? I mean, we use words in a scientific context. Same word, use it in everyday life, and it takes on a totally different meaning sometimes. The word uncertainty, for example, in science, that has a very specific definition. We use it in, a, in an almost a mathematical context. But if you say in everyday life, well, I'm uncertain as to whether there is a rattlesnake in my backyard, you know, that means you don't know, right? But to a scientist, that, that, that word is used in a very different way. So we talked a so, lot about so that. So people don't know that we can quantify our ignorance. And that's a actually profound place to be. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that's uncertainties. That's very scientist of you. <laughs> we can quantify our ignorance. <laughs> yeah, well, science deals in probabilities all the time, right? I mean, that's just part of what we do as scientists is we are trying to quantify how likely it is something's going to happen, but that or not happen, yeah, or not yeah, happen, can, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a that's a sometimes a kind of a hard thing to get across. But I think also, too, just generally, you know, more basically, yeah, can we agree that there are facts that are supported by scientific data that are true? And that's a big theme of the movie. Can we have something that we all agree on that is true? So you weren't just a random astrophysicist to advise them. You, you actually have expertise in asteroid risks. So uh, what can you tell us? Give us just, just some numbers. How many asteroids have us in their path? 
just so we can freak everybody out before right. we start the Q&A. Well, the very good news is, okay, full stop, the movie is pure science fiction, okay? We don't know of a giant... No, it's not so You're lying. That was, that was a documentary. I told everybody that. Okay, go on. We're very lucky. There is no comet that we know about that is about to smack into the Earth in six months. Full stop. We don't know of any such object. So that's... Seven months, yes, but six months right, we're exactly. safe. That's okay. Yeah. Let's put I, it there and let's go straight to questions. Chuck, what do you I don't, know what, I don't know what you're doing in six months and two days, but... <laughs> wouldn't make live it, it up. Wouldn't make any plans. <laughs> live it up for now. Yep, live it up for now. All right. Chuck, so give, give me some questions. Here go we go. For it. Alex Reynoso, who kind of dovetails on Dr. Tyson's question, says, Hello, Alex from Mexico here. My question for Dr. Mainzer is Were you asked for any new ideas for the movie, or did they just ask you to fact check the ideas they already had? And if so, oh, I love that question. If so, what was the craziest idea that you fact checked? Uh, well, I would say, yeah, we we had a lot of back and forth about the script, and it was it was you know we started working on it more than two years ago now, so it's been a while. First off, uh, had to work with Adam to, to figure out the size of the comet. Actually, well, first of all, we had to establish that it was a comet and not an asteroid. So that was number one. Number two, uh, he wanted it to be a lot bigger than I thought was was a good idea for the script. So uh, had him kind of downsize it a little bit, and I told him at a certain point, if the thing is too big, you, you know, there is no movie, right? There's no hope at all. So we wanted to try to size it to something that is is uh, you know is is large enough that it would have caused a lot of damage in the movie. Obviously, that's part of the plot, but but not so large that everybody would just give up and stop trying right off the bat. So, so that was number one. So that getting the size of the comet right was, uh, was kind of one of the first orders of business. Interesting. That's really All right. Cool. But All how right. about weird, but was there something you added, other than the size of the comet that they already knew was going to hit, was there some extra plot line you said, you know, you got to add this to the storytelling, otherwise yeah. it's not real. Yeah, so there's a there's kind of a key. And I'm assuming this is spoilers are okay here. <laughs> I'm hoping everybody's seen the movie at this point. But um, yeah, one of the things that we talk a lot about that is uh, is, is features pretty heavily in the plot is uh, the concept that somebody's going to want to come along and instead of just deflecting the comet, they're going to want to try to mine the comet. Yes, I, I was very right, impressed with that, that turn with that turn of the of the plot line. Yeah. Yes. So basically, yeah. there's sort of a key moment when it looks like everybody, in spite of all their differences, has kind of gotten all their stuff together, and we're going to deflect the comet, and everything is going according to plan. And then all of a sudden, there's a wrench in the works. A plot twist. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Very so good. That, that and and we're reminded that indeed comets and asteroids are very rich in minerals and natural resources. So. That, that factual dimension of it made it comedically authentic for someone to say, yeah. let's exploit this for economic gain. Yeah, Jeff yeah. Bezos comes in and says, hey, I, I, we got a, we got a, I got a trillion dollars up there coming at us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, in you this wanna, case. You want, you want to blow it up? You know? yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Hey, we, just... hey, we can ship that overnight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, no, we got to, we got to, I mean, this was, this was something we talked a lot about in the movie because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about asteroid mining. We do have asteroid sample return missions. In fact, there's two of them. One has already brought a sample back from an asteroid. That's Hayabusa 2. And there's another that's on its way back to Earth right now, and that's OSIRIS-REx. But both of these missions are bringing back kind of the equivalent of about a baseball size worth of material, maybe a coffee can's worth, but that's it. We're not talking tons and tons and tons of minerals here. We're talking a baseball. So, Okay, so this sample return, Amy, so uh, uh, 
we'll get to this later, maybe in the next segment, but uh, that means you're bringing space stuff back to Earth that can't always be good, even if it did have economic value. Mm-hmm. Thinking of like space viruses or something. Nice. But or sp- <clears throat> we'll get to that. Yeah. Just want to tease what could happen later. All right, Chuck, give me another one. All right. Uh, this one's about- Let's see if we can mine these questions. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> you see what I yeah, did there. Well, this one's about space herpes, so no. <laughs> no. Chuck. You said space virus, so anyway, here we go. Uh, hello, Dr. Mainzer, Dr. Tyson, and Lord Nice. Oh, please. Uh, since, Dart's encount- uh, since Dart's counterpart, AIM, was canceled, and thus... We're relying on ground-based telescopes to observe the effects of DART. Will the mission still provide us with enough data to determine if a kinetic impactor could counter the scenario like the one depicted in Don't Look Up? Or will further tests be necessary? Uh, By the way, I appreciate your work on NeoWise. Greetings from Germany, the place where we like to show off how much we know about everything. Okay, Patrick. You know, you could have just asked a question, Patrick. You didn't have to give us a dissertation on how you yourself are an astrophysicist and let me ask Amy all about it. Come on, man. Okay. Okay, so Dart, Amy, quick, what's Dart? So DART is the double asteroid redirection test, first of all. And and it is a mission that is going to a double asteroid. So it's an asteroid that's got a moon going around it. And the idea is to to bump into the moon. So the idea is to take the spacecraft and just crash it into the moon and bump the moon a little bit so that you can see the moon's orbit change. So the idea is to test this so-called kinetic impactor technique. In other words, the energy of motion can we change the orbit of this of this asteroid's moon in a way that is detectable? Now, so the, what is AIM then? What happened to AIM? So the, there was a proposal to have another mission that would that would watch the impact in real time. So basically, just watch the impactor happen uh, or w- watch the impact happen and see whether or not there was a, a big explosion off the asteroid or or what have you. Now, there's a couple things. So the AIM mission didn't end up happening as proposed. However, and was that an acronym? And was that oh, an acronym? Oh yes, and it. Uh, I'm gonna have to look it up. Boy, we have asteroid. Imaging. Yeah, we make this boy. up right now. Let's just do it yeah, now. Asteroid, uh, <laughs> asteroid imaging emission. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's, uh, maneuver. Maneuver. Yeah. Question. Okay. I don't actually remember the name. Uh-huh. We have so I was going to go with murder. I was going to go with murder. <laughs> murder. <laughs> okay. So, so AIM did not make it. However, however, they are going to watch it with the ground-based telescopes, as the as the questioner noted, and. And there is a CubeSat that's been provided by the Italian Space Agency that is going to be watching the impact as well. So there's that. The other thing is the Europeans have a mission that is going to go there eventually uh, in a couple of years after the impact, and it will come back to the asteroid's moon, and it's going to do a very careful mapping of the system. So hopefully between all of that, we can we can piece it all together. What are these videos I've seen where it's some part of, of, of DART detaches while the rest of it collides? Yeah, I think this is the um, the the CubeSat with the uh, observer, the camera on it. That's, that's okay, because they were together and then they separated, yeah. and one went in for the for the collision. Yeah, so I believe okay. it's got a it's got a little friend that's gonna that is gonna drop yeah, off and yeah. take a look at things as it as yeah. it happens. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, more cosmic queries with a collision end of Earth, end of all of civilization expert, <laughs> Amy Mainzer, <laughs> advisor to the Netflix hit film Don't Look Up. When we return.
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. We're back with Amy Mainzer. Amy, a friend and colleague, uh, planetary scientist. Uh, Amy, how do we find you on social media? What, where do you hang out? Uh, I'm on Twitter, so I'm at Amy Mainzer on Twitter. That's where you can find me. Mainzer, I'm mispronouncing your last name. Shame Adds on me. either way. M- <laughs> M-A-I-N-Z-E-R. You're feeling right, particularly Amy. German. You can say Mainzer. <laughs> Me- Mainzer. Yes, okay. <laughs> Don't get Chuck started Mainzer, on his accent. do you have your papers? No. <laughs> <laughs> your peer-reviewed papers? <laughs> I did say it the English, the American pronunciation one time in front of my German grandfather, and boy, did I get an earful. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I okay. bet you did. All right. We want some more of that chuckle to fill in for him. That's the case. <laughs> exactly. Say, Chuck, you're bringing back memories. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, let's get another question, Chuck. Right, See how many we, we can squeeze into this final segment. Uh, this is Dylan. He says, greeting doctors and comedians from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was wondering what size do asteroids become dangerous, not just Mount Everest size. I know that Earth pounds through millions of particles from space that they do nothing. Uh, In other words, we get bombarded all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, What can we expect when an asteroid that could potentially kill all life, what's the smallest that it could be? Well, so we do have some good information about this, and the question is absolutely correct, or the questioner is absolutely correct. We do get pelted with all kinds of little particles all the time every day, about 100 tons. And we mostly see those, if we see them at all, as shooting stars. Those are tiny. These things are like sand grains or maybe the size of a grain of rice or a pea, something like that. But we know that if an object gets to be bigger, say about maybe 20 meters across, so about 60 feet, 50, 60 feet across, At that point, it can start to make it through the Earth's atmosphere more or less intact. Now, we know this is a reasonable lower limit because we have a really recent event. Well, recent on astronomer timescales. In 2013, there was an object that that hit over Russia and it exploded. Remember that? It exploded in the upper atmosphere and there was a shower of fragments. It broke a bunch of windows, but there wasn't a big hole in the ground, right? It was was mostly just an airburst explosion. And that's because the object was small enough that the atmosphere was effectively like a brick wall and really just shredded it. But if the object's closer to, say, 50 meters across, then what happens is you get what we have here in Arizona, which is a mile-wide hole in the ground, more or less. So very small differences in the size, relatively speaking, can make a really big difference. So basically kind of... Okay, for those who've never been to Arizona, she referenced a, a, a practically mile diameter meteor crater sitting there yeah. uh, near Winslow, Arizona. Isn't that right? That's that, right, that's yeah. A, one of the closest towns, a town that showed up in a song. Something, I've been jumping time with the Winslow, Arizona. What's that song? Hmm. It's a I don't know. I think 70, it's called so by the mile, Eagles, mile, mile Wide Crater. Really large crater. Okay, so the takeaway from that answer, Amy, is that occasionally um, rice and peas falls from the sky. 
You said that. It's like we heard. It's like we heard you say that. It's like it's like Earth sweating. It's like Earth sweating. Rice and peas. Rice and peas. It's Earth sweating. I heard her say that. She's on the record. That's it. That's Rice it. and peas. The comments are helping us celebrate every day. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Hey, so I right, Chuck, I, keep it, going. It just occurred to me because you said about the shockwave in 2013. So that was not a very big. Uh, object that uh, impacted the atmosphere to create this shockwave. So, would something the size? What would it take to actually just blow the atmosphere off? Because the first thing that it would hit would be it would make the air like an ocean. Our atmosphere would be like an ocean, right? Because it hits it. If the wait, wait, Chuck, are you asking this question, or is this a Patreon question that you're supposed to be reading from? Oh, wait, which is this? Wait, that's from that's from. <laughs> That's from Buck Rice. Buck Rice. Buck Rice from Rice and Peas, Arizona would like to know. All right, let me tighten up Chuck's question for you, yeah. Amy. So at what size asteroid is unfazed by moving through the atmosphere? There you go. And then it just hits the ground as though there was no atmosphere. Yes. Nice. That's what you're That's what to I was ask. trying to say, but I, exactly. I don't know what yeah. I'm talking about. No, yeah. no, it is, this is exactly the question. If it's a little bit bigger than 20 meters, it's going to make it to the ground mostly intact. And by the time you get to about 50 meters across, now it can blow a pretty big hole in the ground. Wow. So uh, now the thing that hit in Meteor Crater, there's a caveat. It's made of mostly nickel iron because we found some pieces of it that didn't get completely vaporized. But Chuck, she meant nickel plus iron? Yeah. When she said nickel iron, right. just so you know. Yeah. It's not some new element that, nickel that iron. only she knows <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Nickel iron. <laughs> all over, all over. Yeah. No, basically. They're commonly found together in the universe. Supernova make them. And so they're everywhere together. So it's not a surprise we find them together in chunks of things in the solar system. So, Amy, if I remember correctly, the one that hit over Russia was a rocky, a stony meteorite. and But that's not what fell in Arizona. That's correct. Yeah, the one that hit over Russia was uh, was a kind of a, a common type of stony asteroid. So sort of average in its properties. But the one that, the, that impacted in Arizona about 50,000 years ago, that was made of mostly nickel and iron. So a much higher density material. It wasn't a whole lot bigger. It was about 50 meters across instead of 20 meters across. But probably a pretty high density compared to the stony object that uh, exploded over Russia. Mm. And, and, and that crater, by the way, can sink a 62-story building. I've been there several times. It's, it's crazy. If, if you go to Arizona, put that on your list. If, if, you're, if you're a fan of this podcast and you go to Arizona, wave to Amy as you go by Tucson, but then go to, go to this crater. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely out. recommend it. It is impressive. And I think there's a subway um, merch, uh, a concession Stand up at the top. You can eat a sandwich. Right I thought there. you were going to say the, the last subway. Stop. I was going to say it. Went, I, <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like, where did the MTA get that good? Get all the way. Wow! <laughs> I thought Coney Island was far. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Next up, Meteor Crater. All right, all right Chuck, go for go. it. This is uh, woo. I'm going to say Aya Buena Cosa. Okay. Whatever. Um, okay. Aya Buena Cosa says, Hi, Aya from the Philippines here. Uh, what would be the place where humans could possibly survive Earth's destruction? Uh, would you still want to live after that? Is there Ooh. any place you can hide from a extinction-level impact? 
Well, let's put it this way. It is thought we, we, we know a lot about what happens because we can look back at the, at the, at the event that wiped out the dinosaurs, right? And in fact, uh, Neil's home institution there at AMNH does a lot of research on this. American Museum of Natural yeah, History. American yeah, American Museum of Natural History has done a lot of work on this. But basically, we know from studying the fossil records that pretty much any form of life that was bigger than about 50 pounds went extinct. And that's because the food webs really collapsed. There wasn't a lot to eat for a very long time. Life did eventually come back and re-diversify after that impact event, but it took millions of years for that to happen. So it was not a fast process on our timescales. So I would say that, you know, it's, it's bad. You, we definitely don't want this to happen. And we can learn about present-day climate change that we're causing as human beings by looking back at that event and seeing exactly how things unfolded. In fact, I would say the obvious conclusion from that event is that doing large, uncontrolled experiments on our atmosphere is a really bad idea, and we shouldn't be doing it. Mm. So, Well, and plus, plus, Amy, I think that there's, a, there's an important point that you're making there, which is many people think that when the asteroid hits, that's what kills you, an extinction-level asteroid. No, it's because it takes out the food chain, right? It takes out the base of the food chain, and everything that eats that goes extinct, and everything that eats the animals that ate the food go extinct. And so it's this wave of extinction percolating across the tree of life that can take about how long? How long did it take all those animals to die? Do we know? Well, we know from the fossil record that it uh, it was pretty fast, but on geological time scale. So in other words, that could have been, you know, thousands of years or something like that. Thousands yeah. of years. So we lose, we lose most of the species over thousands of years, not because they they were hit by the asteroid itself, which is how you get a small asteroid, small the size of Mount Everest, affecting life everywhere on, on Earth. And you made such an important point, Amy, that um, the only way that can kill life around the other side of the Earth is if it affected the climate. Right. And, and then we learn what we're doing. Are, are we, a, <laughs> Amy, are we an Everest-scale collision? Well, let's put it this way. Earth? We should do everything in our power to make sure that we're not the asteroid or the comet. Yeah, yeah. Our well, we, not, at least yeah, we got yeah. the first part of it right. Ass. Um, ass as an yes, asteroid? Exactly. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Don't, Don't be, be an, an asteroid. asteroid. All right. What Next question, uh, Chuck. Hello, everyone. My name is pronounced Bridge. Really? Okay. Uh, what... <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Would it be possible to eventually put a detection system at points in space like the moon or Mars? And uh, would it would it even be necessary? Mm. Wait, detection or deflection? Um, oh, good, good thing. No, he says detection, but I like your question too. Detection and deflection. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Amy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, of course, we've got ground-based telescopes. We even have a space-based telescope right now. We have NEOWISE, the Near-Earth Object Lifefield Inference Survey Explorer. NEOWISE is the project I work on. And we're building a new one that's going to go in space that will eventually replace uh, NEOWISE because NEOWISE is now very old. Um, that's called the Near-Earth Object Surveyor. And it's not going to go on the moon, but it's going to go just past the orbit of the moon. So not too much further away. In principle, if we have these telescopes, plus we've got the Rubin Observatory that's going to be coming online in Chile uh, pretty soon, hopefully. And so with all of those expanded capabilities, we should be in pretty good shape. We should be able to map out where most of the really big stuff is at that point. Now, could we look at other options? Absolutely. And one of the things we'll do as we start to get data from the more advanced surveys is we'll look at the population models and figure out, okay, what do we do about the rest of the objects? What's the best way to search for them? 
We could try building astro or building observatories on the moon and on Mars, but it's it's hard to do that, of course. Um, so if we can build observatories, well, Amy, I have to stop you. Everything I've got to stop. Everything you just said is just so that we know when to kiss our ass goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't yeah. said anything about deflection. You just you just talk about oh now yeah. we have a catalog of all the things that will kill us and the date and time. So I need more than that from you, yes. Amy. Well, 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 okay. I am hoping, full stop, I am hoping that when we make our big catalog, we find nothing. And that's a great, that would be the best possible answer. Oh, good point. Right? Okay. We could look out there and mm -hmm. we could see that, you know what? They all look... Nothing for 10,000 yeah, years. Just we're fine. good. We're good. We're fine. It's We're all fine here, <laughs> you know, to quote from Star Wars a little okay. bit. Um, but, you know, we could find that and that would be the best case. Of course, we don't want to, mm -hmm. we don't want to just assume the best case though. We do want to make plans for deflection and that's... That's where the DART mission comes in. That was a test of that kinetic impactor technology, which is kind of the easiest thing you can imagine where you just bump into the, the asteroid with the spacecraft. There are other technologies, though, that we could look at, like uh, something called- Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis Yes, yes the Bruce yeah. Willis technology, um, which I'm always in favor of. But, but <laughs> you can always send Bruce Willis. That's probably going to help. But if you want to do something else, you can look at something called the gravity tractor. And I'm not talking about a John Deere tractor. I'm talking about a mass in space. So in other words, you build a really big spacecraft, something very big and heavy, and you park it next to the asteroid. And then you just sort of let the gravity of the spacecraft pull on the asteroid and try to tow it out of the way. Of course, that only works if you have a pretty long time yeah, to let it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a gravitational tractor beam. I love the concept of that. That's super cool. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Chuck. I think we might have time for only one more question. This, this is, is sad because we're talking about this—the the future of life on Earth—and and we got to fit it into our time slots. That that's that's the wrong. Well, that's yeah, just wrong. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it makes sense too. You know, because uh, we're sad as as the way we're responding <laughs> to everything is sad. So yeah. Okay, here yes. we go. I'm sorry. Right. I shouldn't be a downer on humankind. I'm sure we'll <laughs> get it together. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is Daniel Kolakowski. And Daniel says, first, Dr. Tyson, were you consulted on the movie title? No, oh! <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's good. No, the answer is no. But as I watched the movie, I kept, I felt each of those don't look ups as like a dagger into my heart. Because every day I tell people to look up, and they're saying, don't look up. And a movie is way more powerful than I am in messaging the public. So I, it was like tiny, you know, the death of a thousand cuts. That's nice. how I felt. So then so, he says, yeah. uh, second, uh, Chuck, just take a deep breath and then pronounce my name exactly as it looks. You'll get it right. Okay, well, thank you <laughs> for your very, thank you for your very zen. <laughs> Your very Zen instructions. I hope, I hope, I should have read that first, because now I don't know. <laughs> All right. And then third, uh, Dr. Meinzer, in the opening scene where Leo is calculating the trajectory of the asteroid, how is he able to do that accurately in discrete steps rather than using a method to calculate the trajectory with calculus or a computer model? Could he really be that Ooh, like smart? That. This scene in the movie condenses a kind of a bunch of things all together at once. We were trying to be sort of quick about it. But the upshot is, is that Leo is not an expert in comet discovery. Uh, so he's going back to grad school and he's got a bunch of students with him. So I kind of thought, you know, if I were a professor in that situation, 
I probably would want to try to actually work out the math if I could to show the students how it's done. So in other words, use it as a teachable moment. So in the movie, he's kind of using it as a teachable moment. He's looking at a textbook. He's trying to figure out the math for himself rather than just going right to the computer. He's actually trying to kind of work it out. If you look carefully, you will see that they are using their laptops and he is actually writing stuff down on the board that they're that they're getting off of a computer. So they are actually using the computer, but there's kind of a scene in the beginning where he's He's going to try and figure it out for himself a little bit just to make sure he understands it. And I think that's what a good scientist will try to do. But I think the question was he's showing discrete steps of the location yes. of the comet. And then one yes. step, the separation between Earth and the comet is zero. Wouldn't that happen as a continuous calculation or, or, or a, 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 a mathematical function that gets yeah, you there? In, in like practice, the guy said, whose name is we didn't pronounce, uh, would he use calculus, which then gets you the continuous solution? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you do use calculus, although the method that he's using, it's referred to as Gauss's method. And this is a sort of a classical method of orbit determination. The idea is you actually iterate. So in other words, you make an initial guess and then you kind of refine the guess based on an estimate of how far off you are. And then you do it again and again and again. And after that, then you can start looking at discrete steps in time. Once you have a pretty good idea of what the orbit is, the next step is to figure out where's the object going at these specific points in time. And so that's kind of what's shown. There's sort of a two-step process there. Now, Gauss is my man. Gauss is my man. Yeah, Gauss you know. is the Google Maps of orbit plotting. <laughs> Did you know Gauss invented the method of least squares in statistics to solve the orbit of the first asteroid ever discovered? So this is ah, deep. Yeah. The, the asteroid series was in space, moving, and then it got lost in the sun's glare. And it said, where, where do we don't know? Where are we going to look? God said, I got this. Okay. <laughs> so he used the previous measures, extrapolated into the future, into the future using the single best method possible. And to do that, he invented the method of least squares on asteroids. I'm just saying. We got people everywhere working, working on stuff. Well, what a slouch he was. <laughs> God, if only, if only that Gauss had tried harder. Huh? <laughs> what he could have made of himself. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so uh, let's try to slip in one more question, Chuck. Oh, See what you got. Okay. And Amy, you got to answer quick on this. Pretend you're okay. in Pretend I'm the evening news and you got to give me a sound bite. Okay, go. You got it. You got it. All right, here we go, guys. Uh, this will be an easy one because we almost got to it. But uh, Michaela Negus says, uh, what valuable resources exist in asteroids and how much money could be made by mining them? Uh, right, directly to, uh, related to the movie. Now, I have, said, I have said, Amy, that the world's first trillionaire will be the person who exploits the natural resources on asteroids. So how am I right or am I wrong? Tell me here. Boy, I tell you what, it's a, it's a science fiction question in a lot of ways because it's really hard to do stuff in space. We can bring back kind of baseball size or coffee can size bunches of material. Bringing back a lot more than that so far has been really challenging for us. Maybe we will get there someday, but right now we're still talking baseball size amounts of material. So we're, we're still in the, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll get there someday, but we need, we need some Star Trek to happen first. <laughs> yeah, but in 1902, before the airplane was invented, if you said in 67 years you're going to be walking on the moon, they would have put you, they would have committed you. True. I mean, that can't be more far off than walking on the moon before the Wright brothers flew. 
I can't yeah, it, it's it's hard to say, you know, I mean, gosh, so many people have tried to predict the future and have been way, way wrong. So, I mean, you know, who knows? But I will we want say, you on record so we can embarrass you in 10 years. OK, <laughs> there we go. There we go. I think it, it's probably the case that in 10 years, we're not going to be towing back whole big chunks of asteroid. Probably about 10 years is too soon. But, you know, after that, who knows? It's okay. very appealing to try to do it because we all know that there's limited resources on Earth, right, of all these rare materials, right? And we do use them to make things like cell phones and computer screens and all this stuff. So we definitely want to find more sources of them. But it's just really hard to do stuff in space right now. And it's hard to bring material back. Hopefully someday we can figure all this stuff out so that we can tow asteroids back in ways that are safe and then chop them up and extract the minerals. And especially asteroids, that might have, especially asteroids that might have taken us out then we say, so there, we're going to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Revenge on those asteroids. Yes. All right. Uh, last one word question, Amy. Are we all going to die? <laughs> <laughs> Not from an asteroid. Oh. There you mm. go. All, all right. You heard it here. There you go, America. It's still heart disease. <laughs> still heart disease. So eat your broccoli. There you go. Get no, no, we will die if we behave the way they did in the movie you advised. So that they made that clear. We got to end it there. Amy, a delight to have you back on Star Talk. Um, we're going to do this again. Maybe we'll talk about uh, uh, infestations from space and planetary protection. Because I know you've got some thinking on that as well. Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. All right. This has been Star Talk Cosmic Queries, everything that might kill us from space. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. Keep looking up. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.